Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 24. If you're using the uh, Pewback Bible in front of you, that's on page 933, Acts chapter 24, verses 14 through 16. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection, both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Brother Larry mentioned this morning there is a display out in the foyer. Uh, if you've noticed coming in and out, at least from these doors over here, uh, we have Noel and Jessica Stafford with us today and their four children. Um, there's a lot of connection with Angie and me and Noel and Jessica. Um, we, uh, Angie and me and the kids, we worked in Tanzania, East Africa for a couple of years back in 2007 to 2009 with Noel's father. Uh, his name was Cy Stafford. Very, very fine Christian man, one of the best encouragers I've ever met. And um, we, we did work with him and then now Noel and Jessica and their family are getting ready to move to Tanzania. We want to encourage them in the work that they're going to do and pray for them as they get ready to move. I think they're moving at the end of May, is that correct? And so uh, be, be, uh, be sure to meet them if you haven't done so and visit with them about their work. You can put your name on a list out there in the foyer if you haven't done so and get their updates by email and keep up with what they're doing. Did you know that we could bring home every American missionary from Churches of Christ in two 747s? If you, if you went around the world and found every long-term foreign-based American missionary and you, you gathered them all up, you could put them in two airplanes and bring them all home. There are not many who have gone into foreign countries to stay and to work and to love the people. And so great admiration for what you guys are doing and great prayers will be offered on your behalf. And thanks for coming to be with us today. How many of you, just a show of hands, how many of you remember ever hearing a sermon about conscience? I'm just curious, show of hands. Okay, I've got like three half hands raised, it looks like. Okay, did you know the Bible has a great deal to say about our conscience, about what it is, and more importantly, what we're supposed to do with it? This lesson's called Conscience 101. I'm going to start with a couple of passages. In Acts chapter 23, verse 1, the Apostle Paul, making a defense of why he's a Christian, Looking intently at the council, Paul says, Behold, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience until this day. People have a conscience. And Paul says, I've tried to keep my conscience good. That is, I've tried to act in harmony with what my conscience was telling me was right up until this day. And then the passage Alex read just a moment ago, Acts 24, verse 16, Paul writes, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. What is a conscience and why should we be concerned? By the way, make note of this in a moment. This word conscience is mentioned about 30 times in the New Testament. So it's not as if this is just some obscure Bible topic, some obscure subject. There are dramatic implications for what we do before God with our consciences. What is a conscience? If we were going to define it, we might define it this way biblically. Your conscience is 
your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. It's your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. It is a gauge, if you will. When you're driving your car, sometimes that annoying check engine light will come on. You know which one I'm talking about? And you usually go to the shop and they say, oh, it's just a sensor, it's just a gauge. It's telling you that something is wrong with the exhaust system. But that's what a conscience is like. A conscience is a gauge and it's telling us personally, each one of us has one, it's telling us what you're about to do, John, is right, what you're about to do is wrong, or past tense, John, what you just did is right, or John, what you just did is wrong. That's what a conscience does. It's your consciousness, your awareness, and notice the expression, notice the definition says what you believe is right and wrong. Your conscience can be miscalibrated. There are people in the world who not violated their conscience can do things that are ungodly in the extreme. So your conscience can be miscalibrated, but you still got one. It's your consciousness, your awareness of what you believe is right and wrong. And what we're going to do with our study tonight is this. We're going to talk, first of all, about just some basic facts, kind of explain a little bit more what I've, what I've uh, launched into here. We're going to look at some passages from Scripture and what they have to say about our consciences. And then finally, we'll talk this evening about some principles to keep in mind as we consider the fact that we have a conscience and what God expects for us to do with our consciences. So, without further ado, let's talk about some facts, just some basic facts regarding our consciences. The word, and the Greek word is sunodesis. It's right there on the screen. You can copy that if you really want to. It's found about 30 times in the New Testament, and the breakdown is interesting. The word is found twice in Acts. We just looked at the two passages in Acts where the word conscience is found, Acts 23.1, Acts 24.16. But it's found about 20 times in Paul's writings. And then another five times in the book of Hebrews. And interestingly, Peter uses it three times in the book of 1 Peter. So about 30 times in your New Testament, you're going to come across this idea of a conscience. It is, biblically speaking, if we talk about facts, it is a gift from God. It is a warning light. It is a moral censor. It is something that we have within us that is constantly talking to us and telling us that our actions are good or bad, that our actions are right or wrong. And God intended for us to listen to our consciences. As a matter of fact, it matters deeply to people what our consciences say to us. There are people out there in the world right now who have guilty consciences and that drives them to a lot of strange and often ungodly behaviors because their conscience is condemning them for things they've done in the past, for things they plan to do in the future. They, they turn to substance abuse sometimes. Some people have even turned to suicide because they have guilty consciences. It matters deeply to people what our consciences say to us. It's a gift from God. Incidentally, it is a uniquely human gift. That is to say, animals do not have consciences. My daughter and I have this conversation every now and then. We have a dog, love the dog most of the time. The dog knows there are some things that he's not supposed to do. And he knows that when he does those things, he, he needs to come and tuck his tail between his legs and put his ears back. You know how dogs do. The dog does not really have a conscience though. He does not have a moral censor that's telling him this was right and this was wrong and this was good and this was evil. All he has are learned behaviors. 
He's just learned that certain behaviors are what are expected in a certain time, in a certain, uh, certain framework. That's all. That's the way animals are. Animals learn behaviors, but they don't have a moral consciousness of good and evil. Only people do. And that's interesting to contemplate. It's a gift from God. As we think about facts regarding our conscience, secondly, it is a guide, brothers and sisters and friends. Your conscience, you're supposed to listen to it. You need to train it with the word of God. You need to let God's word instruct it, inform it. But when your conscience tells you about your present, what you're doing right now, or about your future, that you're about to do something that is wrong, when your conscience says, don't do this, this is gonna be wrong, you need to stop. And when your conscience tells you that what you're about to do is right or what it's about to, that, that there's something good that can be done, you've got an opportunity, you need to listen. In Romans 13, verse 5, the Bible says, we'll look at this passage in just a moment. The Bible says, be subject to the governing authorities, to the government, for conscience sake, because this is the right thing to do. And you don't want to violate your conscience. It's the wrong thing to do to break the laws of the land. So it's a guide for our present and for our future. It tells us about the decisions we're about to make. And then third, as we think about facts regarding our conscience, it is a judge. It judges our past. The words we've spoken, the things that we've done, our conscience accuses and condemns us when we're wrong. We talk to ourselves and we have this, we have this awareness. I've done something that I know was the wrong thing to do, that I believe deep down in my heart was evil. I've done it and my conscience is guilty because of it. And on the other hand, our conscience commends us and defends us when we do what's right. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3, the apostle Paul appealed to his brethren. He was trying to prove that he really was an apostle. And he said, I appeal to your consciences. He said, tell us, you saw our ministry among you. Was it a good one? Was it godly? Was it biblical? Was it holy? Your, your consciences will tell you whether or not what we were doing was right among you and whether we really are an apostle. So our conscience is a judge for our past as well as a guide for our present and our future. Again, consciences must be instructed by God's word, but it's important to kind of have in mind what this is. It's a gauge, it's a guide. Incidentally, again, I said it can be miscalibrated. Think about this, back to a car analogy. I have a speedometer in my car that is just a little bit off. And what I mean by that is, if my speedometer says that I'm going 30 miles an hour, I've actually learned through experience, I'm really only going about 27 or 28. I, I mean, just in reality. Sometimes speedometers get miscalibrated the other direction, you know, it says 30 miles an hour and you're actually doing 40. If the police officer pulls you over, it's not okay to just say to the police officer, well, my, my speedometer said I was doing the speed limit. There's a standard there. Your conscience is not the standard. Your conscience needs to be calibrated according to the standard. Does that make sense? So the standard is the word of God. What's right and wrong is determined by what God writes in his word. Our conscience is just a gauge or a meter to tell us what we're about to do is wrong, what we're about to do is right. And everybody has a conscience and everybody's conscience is acting according to what we believe to be right and what we believe to be wrong. All right, those are some basic facts. Let's look at some passages very briefly. I put all these on the screen. A lot of passages about to come your way. A lot of things for us to talk about. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail with most of these. Romans 2 verses 14 through 16. 
The Apostle Paul writes in the book of Romans, he's talking about being guilty before God. And he says, Romans 2.14, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written in their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, Paul writes, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. What does all that mean? He's saying that the Gentiles who do not have the law and they have not read much of the Bible, if any at all, even the Gentiles show by the way they live and by what their consciences are telling them, they show that they understand there is such a thing as right and wrong. And when they stand before God on the day of judgment, they are going to have guilty consciences because they believe certain things to be wrong and they went ahead and did those things anyway. Things like murder and adultery. It's almost universal across every culture, across every nation. It's almost universal that those kinds of things are evil. They're considered to be evil. And the apostle is saying these people know, they're aware that they are sinners before God and their conscience bears witness to that. That's what he's saying. Said another way, you can know you're a sinner without knowing God and without knowing God's word. You can know that you're guilty but you need the word of God to know how to be right with God and find forgiveness. Everybody with me? You can know you're guilty without the Bible, but you need the Bible to tell you how to get right with the God of heaven. That's what Romans 2, 14 through 16 is saying. Another passage, Romans 13, verse five, mentioned a moment ago. He's talking about the government. Therefore, he says, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath. You see, if you decide that you're going you're to break the laws of God, you decide that you're going to break the laws of the government, you are going to be subject to the wrath of God. God's wrath will come upon you. But also, you ought to be in subjection to the laws of the government for the sake of conscience. Because when you break a law intentionally, your conscience is going to tell you, this is wrong, this is wrong, the government's an authority, it's been established by God, it's been put there by God, this is wrong, this is wrong, but you go ahead and break it anyway. For the sake of conscience, you ought to keep the laws of the land. Next, 1 Corinthians 8 verse 7. 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 is a lengthy three-chapter discussion on the issue of conscience and what if my brother, what if my sister has a conscience problem with some things? What if they believe some things are wrong and yet their conscience is not fully informed by the Word of God? What are we supposed to do in those cases? Those are, those are matters for another lesson, but just listen to what he says here in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 7. He says, talking about meat offered to idols, he says, not everybody possesses this knowledge. He's talking about what the Bible authorizes people to do. And he says, some Christians, through their former association with idols, they eat food as really offered to an idol. So when these brethren sit down and they eat this food, their conscience, he says, being weak is defiled. What's going on? These people have some rules in their hearts that say it is wrong, wrong, wrong to eat meat offered to idols. In every circumstance, under every situation, it is wrong to do. And the apostle Paul is making the argument biblically, you know, an idol is nothing. And we may have the authority to eat meat offered to an idol, 
But these people, if they believe it's wrong, they have what Paul calls a weak conscience. That is to say, it's got some rules in there that really aren't sustained biblically, but those rules need to be considered. He's not saying that people ought to just abandon and ignore what their conscience is telling them. As a matter of fact, quite the contrary. In 1 Corinthians 8 verse 10, he talks to those that have a strong conscience, those that know it's okay to eat this meat offered to idols. He says, if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? So the Bible tells us, brothers and sisters, that we are to be aware of what's going on with our brethren regarding their consciences. We're to be aware of their scruples and the things that they believe are wrong. And even if their conscience is misinformed, we still ought to yield in love in many cases when there's a dispute of any kind. 1 Corinthians 8, 12 and 13, same context. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, Paul writes, you sin against Christ. Even though you've got the right to do something, and even though you've got liberty, that does not necessarily mean it's the right thing for you to do, especially if you're wounding your brother's conscience, or if you're encouraging your brother to do something that they believe is wrong. So Paul writes, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. It's a matter of conscience. Next, 1 Timothy 1 verse 5. The aim of our charge, Paul writes, the things that I came to preach about is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Listen to what I'm saying. The Bible tells us that we are to maintain a good conscience. That means if my conscience is telling me that something is wrong, I need to listen to my conscience and not do what's, what's wrong. If my conscience is encouraging me to do something that is right, I need to listen to my conscience so that we maintain a good conscience and a sincere faith and a pure heart. That's what a Christian is. A Christian is somebody with a conscience that is good. Said in another way, in 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 19, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. How are you gonna do that, Timothy? By holding faith, and a good conscience. By rejecting this, faith in a good conscience, by the way, some have made shipwreck of their faith. If you think something's wrong, if you really believe in your heart that something's wrong and you go on and do it, the Bible says, number one, that's a sin to you. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But number two, the Bible says you're gonna make shipwreck of your faith if you keep doing that. We need to listen to what our consciences are telling us are right and wrong. Always instructed by the word of God, this is the standard, but our consciences we are to obey, we're to listen to. Titus chapter one, verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. It's possible to damage your conscience by violating it over and over again or by packing it too full of rules that aren't in the Bible, you can damage your conscience in a number of different ways. And Paul is writing about some people whose conscience has become defiled. They've become so corrupt in their thinking and they've become so vile in their actions and their deeds that their conscience has become defiled. It's no longer being a good guide or a good indicator of right and wrong if it even speaks to them at all. You can defile your conscience. Hebrews 10, two through four is a fascinating passage. The writer says, otherwise, speaking about sacrifices and sins, 
They, talking about Old Testament sacrifices, would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any, and here's that Greek word for conscience, any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. What he's saying is, the blood of Jesus can help your conscience because the blood of Jesus logically and spiritually is able to remove sin. Our sins are cast upon him. But it wasn't that way in the Old Testament system where you would take a lamb to the temple and that lamb would be slaughtered and offered for you. There's still a consciousness of sin. That is to say, if I'm really thinking about it, how in the world did this lamb, this actual literal lamb dying for me, how did that fix anything about my relationship with God? And the next year you have to come back and you have to offer another lamb. And the next year you have to come back and offer another lamb. There's a remembrance constantly of the sin in our lives. But not so with the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus can remove that sin. Your sins and iniquities I will remember no more, God says. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. Interesting use of the word conscience there. Hebrews 13, 18, the Hebrews writer says, pray for us. This is the writer, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience. We have acted honorably, he says, in all things. We have acted in according to what we believe is right and what we believe is wrong, we have avoided. Therefore, we have a clear conscience. Again, the Bible has a lot to say about this subject. What can be done with a conscience or what can a conscience be as we think about this, kind of summarizing some of these passages. A conscience can be good. That is to say, it can be clear, it can be blameless. Even the apostle Paul said, I've lived in all good conscience before the Lord until this day. Even when Paul, Saul at that time, was dragging Christians out of churches and throwing them in prison, he still believed he was doing the right thing. His conscience was miscalibrated he didn't understand the gospel and the Lord's will for his life, but he was acting in accordance with what he believed was right. And therefore he was working with a good conscience. It wasn't until Jesus appeared to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That he came to an awareness that, oh, my, my conscience is miscalibrated. I need to hear the word of God. A conscience can be weak. Again, a weak conscience in 1 Corinthians 8 has to do with somebody. By the way, a weak conscience is not the same thing as having a weak faith. You can be strong in faith and have a weak conscience. A weak conscience means that in a certain particular area that there are some things that you believe are wrong even though the Bible does not hold those things up to be wrong in and of itself. But you believe it's wrong. You have reasoned this out in your mind. I believe this is wrong. I believe this is a sin your conscience can be weak. I cannot eat that meat offered to idols. I just can't because it's been offered to idols and you know what idols are and you know what that represents and I just can't do that. That's a weak conscience. It's like the apostle Peter when God appeared to him in Acts chapter 10 and showed him all those unclean animals and said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. You remember what he said? Not so, Lord. I've, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And God says, what God has cleansed, do not call common. Peter had, when it came to eating unclean animals, he had a weak conscience at that time. But thankfully, Peter let God's word and God's revelation recalibrate his conscience. 
So a conscience can be weak. It can be defiled or damaged, as we just read in Titus chapter 1, verse 15. You can damage it by violating it primarily, by doing what you believe is wrong. You know it's wrong to take advantage of this person. You know it's wrong to commit this sin. You know it's wrong to say what you're saying and the way that you're saying it to somebody else. You know it's wrong, but you can damage your conscience by doing that over and over and over again. A conscience can be evil, according to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. A conscience can also be seared as with a hot iron. We didn't look at this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. But just like taking a hot iron and searing it over your skin and all of a sudden you lose after the burn wears off, you lose all sense of feeling, you can do that to your conscience. Where your conscience becomes inactive or silent, it rarely accuses you, it becomes insensitive to sin. It's possible to sear your conscience. That is a terrible place to be. To have a conscience that does not warn you and does not tell you such and such is wrong, such and such is right to have a conscience that you're not sensitive to, to have a seared conscience, that's, that's awful. As you think about the passages regarding our conscience, it's obvious that there are some things God wants us to consider. So here's number three, principles. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Isaiah 55 for just a moment. Isaiah chapter 55. Principle number one is this. Your conscience, brothers and sisters and friends, must be instructed by God's truth. It must be. The Bible is a standard. It is the standard because it is the word of God and because God is the supreme being in all of the universe. He himself is the standard of what's right and wrong. His word, therefore, what he has spoken is a standard of what's right and wrong. And if I want to know what's right in a given situation, if I want to know what's wrong in a given circumstance, I must let God's truth tell me what's right, what's wrong. Look at Isaiah 55, verse six. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and God will have mercy on him and to our God for he abundantly will pardon For my thoughts are not your thoughts, God says, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is saying, you're not thinking the way I think. You're not seeing the world the way I see it. You're not evaluating good and evil the way I evaluate good and evil. Forsake your evil ways, listen to my word, and my thoughts will be much more like your thoughts. Our consciences must be instructed by God's truth. Here's an illustration that I have found helpful. The red triangle, that is red, right? I'm colorblind, okay. The red triangle, Microsoft told me it was red, so I'm gonna gonna go with what they had to say. The red triangle represents the will of God. Everything that God says is good, everything that God says is evil is encompassed in that triangle. Here comes somebody that let's say they were raised in the Lord's church and they decide that they're going to become a New Testament Christian. There are going to be a lot of things in that person's life that they already believe are good and evil based on what God's revelation has to say. But there are still gonna be some things in their life, as you look at that second triangle, there are gonna be some things over here that are not contained in God's word, like eating meat offered to an idol, that this person believes are wrong, that maybe is not sustained by God's word. And 
there are going to be some things that God's word talks about over here that are not yet part of this person's conscience. And so when we become Christians, when we come to Jesus Christ, there is this process and it's a lifelong process, a process of listening to and studying and reading God's word and bringing this triangle of our conscience more in harmony with what God's will teaches. It's a process. There are some things that we need to start doing that we are not currently doing and our consciences aren't saying anything about those because we haven't instructed our conscience with the word of God. And there are some things that it's okay for us to do that we think it's not because we're not allowing our consciences to be instructed by the word of God. This is the final arbiter of what's right and wrong. Then, suppose for argument's sake, let's say we've got two Christians and let's suppose they look like this. In Tanzania, when we lived over there a few years ago, there was a, there was a conscience issue that many of our African brethren had. Women should not wear pants, period, dot. They should not wear pants. As a matter of fact, if you wore pants, it was a sign that you were an immoral person. And so as a matter of conscience, African women would teach their daughters, do not wear pants. It is not the way that God wants us to live our lives. Now, the Bible might have some things to say about that, but this is what was being taught. And so you've got a group of people over here that believe, you know what, it's a sin, it's wrong. It, it would violate my conscience if I tried to, if I'm a woman, tried to put on a pair of pants. It would violate my conscience. I think it's wrong. Don't do it if that's the case. But then over here, you've got another person that's a Christian that believes that it's wrong in every situation, in every circumstance to eat meat that's been offered to idols. And so this person doesn't have a problem with that, but this person doesn't have a problem wearing pants. That's a recipe for a lot of issues in the Lord's church. What are we supposed to do in cases like that? That's where 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 come in. That's also where Romans chapters 14 and 15 come in. How do we relate to one another when we're trying to do God's will and we have some disagreements, not, by, not about what God's word says, but about what our consciences are saying to us? How do we deal with one another? Ultimately, for our point, our conscience must be instructed by the word of God, by God's truth. Second principle is this. Turn to Romans 14, verse 23. This is extremely important. You must not sin against your conscience. If you believe that it is wrong for a woman to wear pants and you are a woman, you must never, ever violate your conscience in that area, ever unless you have come to the conviction by studying God's word that it's authorized and it's okay and it's right for you to do that, unless you have by your study of God's word come to that conclusion, it is a sin for you to do what you believe is wrong. That's what the Bible teaches. Romans 14 verse 23, he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith for whatever is not from faith is sin. The apostle is saying, if there is this food and you think Christians shouldn't be eating that food, but you go ahead and eat it anyway, 
your conscience is saying, don't do it, John, it's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong, but I go ahead and eat it anyway, it's sin to me. Even though it might not be a sin, according to God's word, if I think it's wrong and I do it, I'm violating my conscience. We need to be careful what we do with our consciences. You must not sin against it. Number three, principle. Oh, by the way, sinning against your conscience in one matter will make it easier to sin against it in others. Young people struggle with this sometimes when it comes to dating relationships and they start to become intimate with one another and some lines get crossed and some borders and boundaries that should be there and should be set, those get crossed and you sin against your conscience in this area, it makes it easier and easier to sin against your conscience again and again in other areas as well. All right, number three principle. A careful study, brothers and sisters, of God's word is the final and it is the only arbiter of what is a matter of faith and what is a matter of judgment. We need to study our Bibles. We need to read our Bibles. We need to get into the word of God because it's not just okay for you and me to say, well, I think what I'm doing is a matter of conscience. I think what I'm doing is a matter of judgment and it's okay for me to do it because my conscience is not telling me it's wrong. What does God's word have to say about it? And I'm not just talking about, you know, okay, I read the book of Matthew and it didn't have anything to say about what I'm about to do. I'm talking about all of God's word. As students of God's word, we have a sacred obligation to come to God's truth, to come to God's word and let all of his word instruct and inform us on every matter of life. What does the Bible say about this matter? What does the Bible say about that matter? Gather all the relevant evidence and then draw only the conclusions that are warranted by that evidence. Acts 5.29, the apostles said, we must obey God rather than men. And they were talking about the government there. But do you know that there are a lot of people that say, you know what, my heart desires to do this. And so instead of saying we must obey God rather than men, we decide to do what we want to do regardless. We must obey God rather than just what we think is a matter of judgment or what we think is a matter of conscience. John 12, 48, the word that I have spoken will judge you at the last day, Jesus said. 2 Timothy 2, 15, be diligent, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We must be careful in our study of God's word and allow God's word to be the final and the only arbiter of what is a matter of conscience, a judgment, and what is a matter of faith. We must. There's a lot that the Bible says, a lot more than what we've just done tonight regarding our consciences. I'd encourage you to read some of the passages that we looked at this evening and think about this. But maybe you've been doing something in your life, the reason I'm preaching this lesson. Maybe you've been doing something in your life and you've got some questions or doubts about whether it's right or not. You need to stop and you need to open up the book and you need to read and understand what God has to say about this before you do any more of anything that you think might be wrong. What does the Bible tell me about this? There may be some things that you are not doing and your conscience doesn't bother you, but you ought to open up the book and ask, Master, is it I? Is there something that you would have me to do, God, that I'm not doing right now? And my conscience isn't bothering me about this. We as God's people have an obligation to pay attention to this wonderful gift this regulator in our lives that says, John, what you just did is good. John, what you just did is evil. We have an obligation to listen 
in accordance with what the Word of God says. If we can help you obey the gospel tonight by faith in Christ, repentance of your sin, confession of his name, and baptism, you can become a Christian. If we can help you do that tonight, if we can help you by praying for you, praying with you, won't you come forward while together we stand and while we sing.